Welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party. This week, we'll be taking a look back at the March 18th, 2000 episode of SNL with first-time host Dwayne The Rock Johnson and musical guest ACDC. I'm John Murray, and I'm joined this week by Steve Finn, as well as our very special guest, comedy writer, performer, and co-star of the CBC sketch comedy series Tall Boys, Franco Nguyen. You can watch season three of Tall Boys on CBC Gem. If you'd like to connect with Franco, you can find him on social media at Franco Wins. And if you'd like to find us, go to snlpodcast.com. Enjoy these selected highlights from this week's discussion. If you'd like to watch our full-length, ad-free, sketch-by-sketch review, you can find it exclusively at patreon.com forward slash snlpodcast. It's our supporters that make this show possible, and we are so thankful to everyone who's already come on board. All right. Enjoy. Well, Steve, it has been far too long since we talked vintage SNL. That's right. And what better way to do it than with, uh, you know, the original duo? Yeah. If we're going to talk vintage, we might as well take a, a vintage form of the show. So let's have you back in the hosting chair for a minute. Yeah, it feels good. It's a throwback. It's Canadian night on uh, the SNL podcast tonight. Um, but honestly, I, I really don't want to talk to you. Why would you? <laughs> well, honestly, like the only reason why this is happening, the only reason why we're getting together tonight is because you told me that you could probably get someone on the show that I was very, very excited to be able to have an opportunity to talk to. So I, uh, I don't want to leave him hanging here. I want you to introduce Franco and uh, let's, let's get into this. So yes. who'd you bring along tonight? Let's introduce the man I bribed you with <laughs> to come on the show. Uh, Franco Nguyen, my, uh, my old friend from college days. Uh, yes, Franco, it's right. good to see you. You're looking well. How are you? Great to see you too, Steve. You are also looking great as well. well thank you. So we go back, uh, I believe, what is it, like 2006? Yeah. It's, it's been so long. 2006, 2007 was year one at yes. York University of Film. So that's where we met. Uh, you know, we uh, took film school together. I don't think we worked on anything together, which is probably yeah, the best decision haven't. you could have made. <laughs> Dude, I missed out. <laughs> You missed out or dodged a bullet. Yeah, the bullet. Your other? career has really suffered, Franco, for <laughs> not being able to collab with Steve. Sure, sure. Uh, but yeah, it's it's interesting though because you know that was a production class. I knew you as a uh, you know uh, in the production world, uh, but you have made quite a name for yourself as a performer, a writer, and uh, yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, so I want people to get to know you a little bit. So let's go back. I don't know, as far as we need to, to uh, learn how the spark started for, for sketch comedy in Franco's world. Um, I, I always loved comedy. It was always my favorite genre. And I, I wish I still had it. I don't know where it was, but in sixth, I think fifth grade, fifth or sixth grade, we had to write a, a letter to some of our favorite celebrities or heroes. And I wrote one to Jim Carrey. And it was like to his fan club. So I got his headshot sent back. I don't know where it went, but I... I think it was in a math book that I returned. Um, but yeah, I always like love comedy. Um, I think I said this on a couple of interviews where like my first big laugh was uh, during like a bicycle presentation where the, it was like in sixth grade and uh, the bike presenters were like, if you have a bike, you still have to stop at a stop sign. And I was like, Eve in the back of the room, even if you have training wheels, <laughs> the room just burst. Every child was just laughing people carried me out they crowned me principal and king of the school you knew um, your audience yeah, yeah. You're, you're playing to the right crowd yeah <laughs> they really knew it. um and the, yeah i was so zany um 
Uh, but I remember that was such a high. And I think I, I had also talked about this on other, because, you know, I'm, I'm Vietnamese and uh, my parents don't speak English. And I kind of, you know, there's a cultural difference too, where in school I was kind of had this freedom. It's like this other identity. Um, so it was like, you could kind of just be zany and like outgoing. Whereas like at home, there's like, it was like a little bit more restrictive and it, there was not as much uh, communication. Um, and then in high school, I was, um, I was in all the, my like really enjoying drama class. I was in the high school play. And during lunch, we had like an, a really bad improv <laughs> show at lunch. <laughs> it was so bad. It was like in the middle of the hallway. It wasn't, it was in the foyer. <laughs> I have some footage of it. It's so terrible. Um, <laughs> we had those but, in my school. Definitely yeah. wasn't our best work, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I, I, cause I'm jealous of people like in the improv scene. Every, a, a lot of people I know went to, uh, was it the Canadian improv games? CIG. Mm-hmm. Yep. I a went lot there of people four like, times. See, so that I see that's legit where like our improv team was like, Dude, I just saw the show called Whose Line. Let's just do that, but with no structure or training. <laughs> like, just no idea. That um, doesn't look so hard. Yeah, it's easy. And <laughs> they make it look easy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, and then I think when I went to film school, it was such a, I felt like it was kind of like a bit of, I felt so privileged to be able to go. I felt like I had to make like really great movies. And I didn't, at the time, I felt like, you know, making a comedy movie might not be a serious use of the time because it was, you know, you associate it with school and you don't really consider it like, you know, I don't know. I was like trying to get straight A's and like, I was just worried that like, it would be too goofing. Like it's already bad enough. I'm going to film school, but like goofing around at film school, that's a no, no. So I think like (laughs) at my time, meanwhile, I made a comedy at film school. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It made great stuff. But anyhow, yeah, uh, going to, and then, uh, when I was finished, uh, film school, I was in a sketch troupe called Asian Exploitation. And I also started stand up like two years out, out of film school. And then from there, I, uh, I just met Gulai Tim and Vance in the open mic scene. And I started taking classes at the Second City. And I started doing really well at the Second City. Um, I was part of this thing called, um, uh, the, a Bob Curry fellowship. It started in Chicago. It was named after one of the first mm-hmm. uh, performers of color, African-American named Bob Curry. Uh, and it was like a kind of like a master class of sketch that you had to audition and get invited into one of the graduates, like everyone who, a lot of people who graduated, like are, are doing really well. Like Aliyah Kanani, who is in this movie called Scarborough. That's doing re- really well in the indie film circuit. And she's nominated for like a lead act for best lead actress. Funny enough, um, Celeste Yim, mm-hmm. they they came through that program. We were like sharing the stage, and then like they're on, like they're writing for SNL now, like like getting sketches on, like consistently writing like stuff we've all seen. Yeah, so it was just like such a great class. It was such a great thing to be a part of. And then from there, I was able to um, get a job uh, as part of Second City's education company. And then I'm bumped up, got bumped up to Turco. But r- like the month in, I got bumped up at Turco. Tall Boys got greenlit, so I had to stop Second City um, and work on Tall Boys. So you're only but in the touring company for like a month before you got pulled into CBC? Yeah, it was like a month and a half. Mm. It was like like it was like just under, like it was just over a month. Yeah. So you, you took Second City for all they were worth, and then like the second you got an offer, you're like, peace out. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I'm done with you guys. <laughs> it's like a Bill Hader situation. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he was only there for 
Yeah, he was, was only doing it like that for for months and, before he mm-hmm. got signed. Yeah, Megan Mullally was also at my show too. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. No, I'm just no, I'm just joking. I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. That's funny. No, no, she was. Uh, That's funny. Uh, was, can we can we talk about Tall Boys a little bit though? Because you know, I want to ask you a little bit about. I mean, everybody. There's a lot of talented people working on this show, uh, but we do want to ask you a little bit about Bruce McCullough. Of course. Now yeah. he's known for Man, Kids in the, the myth, Hall, the legend. Of yes, course. he did write for SNL, so obviously we're inter- interested mm-hmm. in talking about that. And Kids in the Hall was Lauren Michaels produced, so it's it, yeah. it's, it's all part yeah. of the, the same yeah. sphere. Yeah. So I, I guess my he question was- is, uh, do you know how jealous I am? <laughs> <laughs> what gives now, you the right what, my first question who do you follow up question who do you who think, do you, think you, are? you are yeah, yeah. But, but how's it been working with bruce i mean he's your executive producer and director uh i think he's one of the most brilliant minds for comedy direction out there so it must be a dream come true right he's a brilliant mind it's like so he's very generous um he's very he's very kind very generous i think i'm I was very intimidated the first, uh, like, for like a year and a half, like first year and a half. It was just like I didn't know what to say to him. I just was scared. <laughs> uh, but he was always very accommodating. And then as we've gotten more comfortable, he adjusted. I would say he adjusted to us more because I think we're, you know, we just don't have the same kind of like, uh, they're fearless in terms of like confrontation, like from what I've heard of kids in the hall like they're very like hey this is my idea i uh, this is what i hear in the writer's room this is my idea this is do you like it you don't like it well your idea is not as good as mine and this is why whereas i i think in our room we're kind of like oh yeah uh okay we'll we'll see i think the, the benefit is everyone gets heard but i think sometimes we don't really um we just yeah we never really fight which is great because then we, there's no conflict but then it's kind of like you know, there's no, sometimes it can eliminate fire. Yeah. You know? Sometimes that you need that passion. Like you need the, the iron yeah. to sort of sharpen iron a little bit there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we're, yeah, we're that, our energy is that, uh, you know, when the cable starts going out, like, or it's like, like at 2am when the station starts mm-hmm. shutting down, we're the, like the loon energy. <laughs> um, but yeah, Bruce is great. He's very kind. Um, and it's really cool that like every so often in between, he's going to like tell like an SNL story about, you know, just like even like a little bit of a nugget that it's so amazing to hear because, you know, well, being a comedy fan and just hearing just a little juicy, like we'll say something. And then like the word liar or not the lie. Oh, well, John Lovett's character. Is it the liar? The liar. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Well, what's his catchphrase again? It's like, um, he has a catchphrase on it. It's like, anyways, that's the ticket. <laughs> yeah. That, no, Anyways, it was something. It, it, it's yeah. like, yeah, like he's trying to yeah. convince you. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Anyways, he's, yeah. he'll just say something. Like, yeah, I used to. Um, I had to write so many of those. <laughs> you know, it's just like <laughs> it's really fun. Mm-hmm. Or he'll like drop a quote that Lauren said to him, like something like um, some pearl of wisdom. Yeah, he'll or something really funny. Like he's like Bruce will say to us, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, I'm only one voice, uh, but a very important voice. And that's something Lauren used to say to him all the time. Mm-hmm. And the kids, so you know, it's really fun. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. That's a pretty accurate Bruce voice there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess you guys are getting along because are we allowed allowed to talk about this? You, I believe you have some involvement with the Kids in the Hall reunion. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't have major involvement. I was there for. I play a small part. I have a small cameo in one of the sketches. Okay, me, so you're in a, an adjacent hall. 
Uh, one of those. Kids. I'm a. I'm like a delivery boy. I'm not. I don't know if I'm a, a hall. I, I. I would be honored, but I don't know. I, I was so only it, there for a day. It, it's but fair it to say that basically that that whole sketch hangs on your performance. Is that is that what you're trying to? Do? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm a pivotal role. So let let's let's talk about what Tall Boys is just a, a little bit here, because you know we've talked a lot about the inside baseball and and you know who's producing and, and that kind of stuff, but. Um, for our mostly American audience, they may not have encountered it. So uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to give my cliff notes version. If there was an equivalent to what kids in the hall was, uh, you know, like sort of like uh, a premier sketch show built around a troupe that kind of has its own voice and its own approach. Um, that's Canadian centric, but very much of the time. That's how I would frame tall boys. So uh for anyone that isn't familiar with it, that's kind of how I would see it. What, um, like you, you guys performed as your troupe before you got the show. How did you pitch it? Like, what did you, what did you bring to CBC to get them to, to green light it? Like, what do you see the show as? I think, yeah, I mean, a lot of the show is based off of our live sketches. Um, and I think that's really what CBC bought. Um, and also having Bruce and Susan Canavan accent entertainment attached to it made it really like an easy sell for the network especially because like we we there was a lot of buzz for our troupe in the comedy scene at the time we had just won producers pick at sketch toronto sketch fest we like were just coming off a sold out run at the fringe or like mostly sold out run um and then we had uh like a, a really great run at the montreal sketch fest so I think people had seen our like the moment Bruce saw us at the the Toronto Sketch Fest. He's like he wanted he he just knew that there was something unique about us. Um, so I you know our our sketch show is just like uh, we joke that it's uh, for diverse friends doing diverse things diversely. <laughs> uh, but it, but it's also it really is the sketch show is like kind of centers around our friendship and also what comes from the minds of you know, four single mom raised <laughs> boys who watched too much TV. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a, a bit of an innocence to your, the, the worldview presented on the show, which I, I find very charming for what it's yeah, worth. For sure. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. We don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, like, a, like an innocence in that. I don't know. Like there's shows that want to go out of their way to, to just be edgy for edgy sake. And then there's other, shows that are just happy to dwell in the goofy and the charming and just what makes you giggle kind of stuff. And, uh, I don't know. I, I, I love a show that's that accessible. So, uh, you know, kudos. It's, it's a fun show. It's yeah. well worth turn, tuning into and everyone can find it on CBC gem. So, uh, yeah, yeah. two enthusiastic thumbs up. And it's on CBC uh, gem. fuse. Yep. Yes. Thank you, Steve. Yep. You're jumping in right there. Yeah. I was, I was going to, but you, you're uh, better than me to do it. So oh, yeah. I think it's safe to say that you're qualified to discuss Saturday Night Live, more, <laughs> I, more I specifically, so. this episode, uh, this 2000 episode, The Rock's uh, first outing is what we're going to cover tonight. I feel like you have enough industry cred, enough sketch cred, enough performance cred. Uh, you could probably bring a lot to the table. So I'm very excited to get your perspective on the episode. And, uh, you know, unless we want to just, you know, shoot the breeze for another half hour. Are you guys ready to kick in? Let's do it. Yeah, I'm happy right. to. Wonderful. Cold open. Vince McMahon assured Lauren that having wrestlers on SNL would not get out of hand. We get some cameos from Vince McMahon, Mike Foley, Triple H, and The Big Show. So, Franco, 
start us off. What'd you think of the cold open? I honestly, I, I loved it. I mean, this was, this is such a joy to watch because it's so nostalgic. This was, I stopped watching wrestling around this time, but I used to watch it. Like I wanted to be a wrestler around this time. I remember this is when <laughs> your other, your other great one? passion in life. My other, honestly, I, is I didn't when I realized I didn't want to get uh, hurt. <laughs> uh, I was like, ah, maybe not. But like, it was such a fun time. I remember everyone was into wrestling. Uh, I remember the parody. There was a South Park shirt parody that I used to wear all the time. Where I think it was Kyle had a, a Sting face paint. So loved wrestling. <laughs> loved this opener. Um, loved Vince Man watching it now as a comedy fan. Loving seeing a small cameo from a very young Michael Schur mm. uh, in the audience. We can see yep. him there. And he's, oh man, his hair is jet black. <laughs> so man, I loved, I, I, like it's, it was honestly so funny. And I, the big show was the one that the person who really stole the show. Cause some of his choices were like, it was so giddy and playful and like him, that that reveal of the chair behind like because <laughs> it was so brilliant he's like this giant massive man who should be intimidated but he's being sneaky right you know he's, he's being coy he's big enough to hide yeah. a chair behind his back he's gonna go for it yeah absolutely <laughs> a man that yeah so a, a man that size shouldn't have rules and he's trying to like <laughs> sneak around them. so yeah. I, I i loved every every aspect of this fair enough I, steve you got anything to build on that were you a big wrestling fan back in the day yeah uh that's what I think all kids were big in wrestling, at least all the little boys. Most grow out of it, but I think they eventually, they don't come full circle, but they learn to look back at it fondly after mm-hmm. this phase of being like, oh, wrestling's for, for kids. But yeah, I mean, I would never turn wrestling on, but I care enough to get sad when Razor Ramon dies. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's, that's the compass, I guess, mm-hmm. to go by. Uh, what I liked about this, though, is that it's, it felt like an injection of WWF or were they WWE yet? No, it was uh, WWF. WWF. Yeah. That was the interesting yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Really cool. uh, yeah. It was like, cause as for as different as WWF and SNL are, you know, I think this showed how they're similar in a lot of ways, because if you watch those shows, a lot of it is like, you know, the drama that goes up, goes right. on in the dressing rooms and the corridors. And, you know, this is not, too different from their regular day job and it's interesting it all it also makes you wonder you know how much vince mcmahon had to do with this because being the owner of this whole conglomerate you know he also owned the rock name so you don't just have to keep the rock happy you got to keep vince right. happy to to make this all work out or else he could just say no i own this name yeah. but this is the only thing you go by this is this is what you're you're known for i mean vince would get a, a executive producer credits at like the scorpion king just because they needed that to use the rock name so right i can see him being like i want to put this thread through the whole episode like this is this is my creative input that you kind of got to play along with if you want yeah. the rock uh but it gave this like anything could happen kind of feel to the episode and it made me realize how in modern day like things are much more rigid now compared to the kinds of stuff they would do in this era and before yeah. But I was surprised to see how recent an episode was 22 years ago, but still relatively recent. It's still feeling like more of a kind of anything goes type of variety show. Dude, it's, it's I think that's, that's a great point, too. I really like I didn't even realize that. Like 
that anything could happen, like injecting the sense of danger throughout the episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because at any point, the rock could get hit by a chair. Like that's the, <laughs> the feeling you have. <laughs> and that whole point about like Vince McMahon uh, being the, uh, you know, injecting. That was the one thing that kind of pulled me out of it that I guess I didn't realize when I was 13 when I watched this. <laughs> or I think it was like 12 maybe. Um, was the live from New York at it's Saturday night. It was strange for me watching now as a, a, a part of an ensemble and knowing the kind of the the core uh, fundamentals and principles of improv and ensemble com- comedic performance to see only Vince McMahon right. say live from New York when all like three of his yeah. major You would have thought they would all be shouting it together. But that, that goes to Steve's point that maybe Vince McMahon, he wanted a little bit of limelight. If I'm, if I'm going to loan out the rock for the night, I'm, I'm going to get to say live from New York. Yeah. And well, nobody's stealing my, my thunder. Even my wrestlers, they get to stand behind me while I do it. Uh, yeah. it, does, it does, it does say something. Uh, there, there's, there's something there. I think Yeah, all good points. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to add. When I was watching it, I liked it because I thought, Oh, I, I get what they're doing. They're doing the backstage beef. Like you would get at any, you know, whatever SmackDown episode. Um, what I didn't realize though, was they're setting the table for a runner, which is kind of what's fun about this episode is they do break the fourth wall. They do let, uh, the wrestlers kind of come back and, and derail a few sketches along the way, just to keep the energy up and, and let you know, everyone's having fun. So as setting the table, it's brilliant as mm-hmm. sort of a, uh, an homage to that, classic wrestling thing of the the faux beef and you know uh, you know everybody's always at odds with everybody and there's always someone trying to stir up crap that's all all fun and of itself and uh yeah i I thought it set a good energy the only thing i was i was thinking is is this going to become more of a like group circusy show or is the rock really going to get to shine that was the big question that this left for me uh, fortunately, the, you know, the episode answers it very definitively, but, um, that was the only thing coming into it that I thought, oh, is this, is, is there just going to be too many chefs in the kitchen with this episode? Um, but mm-hmm. we'll, we'll, uh, dig into that more as we move on. Uh, why don't we, uh, talk about the monologue? The rock is not used to working with such small people. And in a continuation of the cold open, the WWF jabronis crash the show. All right, Steve, uh, what do you make of the monologue? Most interesting thing is, uh, the realization that, okay, we have a motif happening right. here. We have uh, a long form narrative bleeding into, uh, you know, subsequent uh, segments. So this, this made me excited and uh, this, yeah, it made me kind of view this episode watching as a way to, you know, appreciate what the current cast and era gives me and, and maybe also consider what I wish was still around from the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, another interesting thought was, uh, in hindsight, seeing the star power, just the obvious star star power that Dwayne Johnson has like back in this, uh, era where he's not even going by Dwayne Johnson yet. He's, he he was still just a cheesy wrestler. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how it's so obvious to look back on and say, well, of course he became a big star. I mean, look, look at the charisma he has, look at the natural likability of him. And then, you know, it. It's it just at the time we were thinking, hey, come on, man. There's there's plenty of actors out there. Why do you got to put this guy in movies? Like that was really mm-hmm. how people felt about The Rock back then. But it's so funny how how perspective can change things. You know, we all get older. Uh, I still think Franco secretly chose this episode just to remind us how far away the year 2000 was. They used to be like <laughs> yes. a sci-fi sounding oh, year, hard, right? 
But uh, well, yeah. I mean, like this episode, I think it kind of pulled me more into SNL. I think I was more of a wrestling yeah. fan, and I was like, "Whoa, this is the Rock's hosting this thing," and then there's it's funny, and I, and then that's I think I around that time, maybe the summer before the summer after, I started watching a lot of SNL. I think Comedy Network had just kind of became a channel. Mm-hmm. Watched a lot of episodes of the Phil Hartman years, like that era with Sandler. And and I think right before SNL, I would watch <laughs> Bizarre and then SNL on the same block. <laughs> but this was, I think this was the episode might, that might have pulled me into SNL where I was like, oh, okay, this is the structure. This is how it works. This is, a, you know, a monologue. And it was, it, yeah, this is, this is sketch, live sketch comedy. So this planted some seeds. This this in think, yeah, in definitely. some way may have led and you know wove a path through to where you are now. Yeah, I think so. I think okay. even watching it now, um, yeah, because I I remember laughing a lot at Chris Parnell, and yeah. now watching it now, I'm like, wow, he's such a like an invisible star of this episode because mm-hmm. he's in a bunch of uh, supporting roles, but like kills in every supporting role in this one. You know, and and the desperation. Well, we'll, we'll get to it, but yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll get to it. Yeah, you're not wrong. Well, that's that's probably enough on the monologue. I don't want to belabor the point because there's a lot more show to get into. Um, my only thought at this point is coming out of this because it was so heavy on the cameos and so much of it was devoted to the you know the back and forth beefing. Um, again, I'm just wondering how much of this episode is truly going to be the rock. So it was an open question at that point, but then, but then we, uh, you know, we, we get into the show proper and we're going to get some answers. So let's get into our first pre-tape of the night. Uncle Jemima's mashed liquor is way more fun than pancakes. All right. So Franco, um, I don't know how well this sketch aged. So try, <laughs> try and take it for what it would have been in 2000. How, how do you think this would have landed for 13 year old Franco? I think for a thirteen-year-old Franco, I do remember. Uh, I remember the cartoons. The first time someone kind of, you know, calling out the cartoons, like the meta joke about he doesn't really see the cartoons, yeah, yes. and it's related to the booze, right? Was so funny, and I think it that aspect of it really ages well because you he's just swatting. Yeah, what do you swat that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's not just it's not even just a, a parody of like oh is it Songs of the South is the movie that yeah yeah kind of parodying yeah yeah it's it's not just that it's also like it's rooted in some sort of logic or some sort of plot point or story right. point or it's a device for you know it so it, it yeah, I thought that was so funny and I love um, Tim Meadows man his performance like it's you wouldn't even know that was him the way mm. he delivers it because the way he he doesn't even he performs with a subtlety of this friend character. Like, I don't, I don't want to get involved in that. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's the uh, same yeah. counterpoint to Tracy Morgan's just, you know, insane hallucinogenic. <laughs> he's <laughs> the judgmental steer. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what, what did you think, Steve? What, what was your takeaway on this? You know, I'm trying not to get into it all. Uh, but I, I will say it's nice to see old school cell animation mm-hmm. uh, used to be much more prevalent in SNL. And uh, yeah, we'll be, we got those Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles shorts more recently. This is the kind of stuff it reminded me of when Esno mm-hmm. would do more of this stuff. Uh, but yeah, this this was enjoyable. It, it's dated in a couple of ways because it's no longer Ed Shemima, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. This was funny. I always enjoy it when uh, Tracy Morgan... Uh, plays old characters. I, I love his old person persona. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And yeah, Franco, you're right. Uh, Tim Meadows was a great straight man to this. Just the leave me out of this kind of attitude was great. Yeah, not much to say. Yeah. So I'll keep that one brief for sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, the more we talk, the more trouble we're going to get in with this one. <laughs> yeah. um, let's move on to an equally problematic sketch. Tim Meadows, the ladies man, has finally found true love. All right. Uh, Franco, kick this one off. What'd you make of this? <laughs> I love Tim Meadows. Uh, I think one of the best perf- underrated SNL performers. I lo- remember when the ladies man came out at the time. I remember mm-hmm. loving it. One of my favorite jokes that I always quote every time I put on a jack or a suit uh, in the ladies man, he says er, he walks into the room and everyone's like, Ooh, cause he just got a brand new suit. And he's like, Ooh, and he goes custom made $100. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I always like refer to that joke every time I uh, put on a jacket, I'm like custom made $100. <laughs> um, um, but I mean, of course, like this is the, of this sketch is definitely so, uh, so dated. Like it's so, I, I don't even remember. Like we, I just watched it earlier. So, there's so many things. It's like such a time capsule the, of the of an episode. One, it's like kind of like The Rock, like just kind of like on the precipice of leaving the WWE onto movie stardom. Mm-hmm. Another thing I didn't realize uh, watching it, and we'll get to it later in the weekend update. This is like a pre 9 11 show. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the other, so it's a has it like you can is there a different tone in the energy and um and then. Uh, yeah, and then also, of course, sketches like this where it's like at the end, you know, The Rock coming out and and kind of yeah, like making making something like something that should be completely normalized, uh, you know, kind of like creating uh, like not an undignified performance of mm. someone that's cross dressing, and it, that being kind of the butt of the joke and punching down, and then of course like the the scene ending with. Um, a kind of like a wink at sexual assault, yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 kind of was like, well, okay, like this is 1990 or year 2000. 2000. Like, this is a lot of the type of jokes uh, throughout the episode. Mm. Uh, Steve, you got anything you want to build on that? Or is this again, one of these situations where we just want to keep rolling on? <laughs> well, <laughs> Frago put it well, uh, you know, mm. uh, it's, it's, it's an excuse to get rocking to address. Uh, this is what they chose to do it. You could argue that the vehicle is is dated. You know, it's it's interesting to see the kind of material that makes its way through the chain, and you know, with all the opportunities to question and cut it, you know, it does not happen, and it mm. gets gets to air. So that goes to show you just how much different the conversation is. And that's not to say there were people out there who had a problem with it. They had less of a voice at the time without Twitter, social media. So it's really interesting uh, just to see the way that the uh, the, the digital, uh, I guess we're calling it the metaverse now, the way that that's <laughs> opened, opened up things. To, to put a bookend on it, um, whenever I watch vintage SNL, because vintage SNL you know, goes back to the, the mid-70s and uh, over the course of 40 some odd years, you're going to encounter a lot of stuff that maybe worked at the time or uh, people didn't maybe read into it as much or put as much social import on it as they might today. Um, So when I'm watching SNL vintage SNL, I always try to look at it from the perspective of someone watching it in the time and, and try to not impose a modern sensibility on it as much as possible 
Um, not because there isn't, you know, a comment to be made about that. And obviously, you know, we just had that conversation simply because I want to do my best to figure out a way to look at it and parse whether there's anything of merit from a sketchcraft perspective and just from a performance perspective. And you kind of have to let yourself enjoy the sketch on its terms to figure out if there was merit at the time in it. And with this one, my, you know, for, for all that setup, um, my big, my big takeaway on it is this was not a great outing of the ladies, man. Like as far as ladies, man sketches go there, there were a lot where it hung a lot more on Tim Meadows extolling his worldview and his perspective and his advice and really, um, just really painting a picture of, of kind of how he gets down and, and who he is as a character and that exploration of, of what is, you know, effectively a, a train wreck, terrible character. There, there can be a lot of fun in that. Um, but because like you guys mentioned, the only reason why they brought in the ladies man was because they needed a vehicle to try and get the rock in address because they knew he was, you know, he came to play and he was willing to be a little self-deprecating and go down those paths that they wanted to take advantage of it. And this is the vehicle that they found, but that doesn't make it inspired. That just makes it, you know, uh, a cheap way of getting the rock in address. And because of that, I don't think that they found great comedy in it. So just keeping all of the, the, the social stuff, uh, at arm's reach. I don't think this was a win personally, just even, even in 2000, I don't know if I would have given it high marks. Um, Unless, you know, as a 13 year old, maybe I would have been giddy too, just to see the rock in a dress and be like, oh, that's so, so weird. Um, but other, <laughs> other than that shock value, I don't think there was a whole lot here. So now that we've, uh, put a solid 20 minutes in on that sketch, why don't we move <laughs> along to, uh, our next live sketch scientists reunite Mr. Peepers with his father, Papa Peepers. Okay. Steve, take this one. Uh, did we want an outing with Mr. Peepers and his dad? Uh, yes. If this yeah. is who his dad is going to be, because this is. Uh, some of the best stuff that uh, Mr. Rock does at a, at this SNL uh, episode. Uh, I feel uh, I feel like it uh, takes advantage of his physique because he he stands in a squat for the entire time on the table and, and to keep balance in that position uh, enough to to flail flail your arms around and act like a gorilla. You know that that takes a lot of strength. So yep. that's using a strong man uh, to your advantage there. Yes. If it was like Colin Hanks hosting or something, you wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't work. You wouldn't expect that of him. But it, it maybe think of something random, like just the as a performer, as a comedic performer, especially like the the, the little hidden talents you develop in your career, like you know uh, Howie Mandel inflating a a glove with his nostrils <laughs> over his head. That's that's a very unique talent, but only. Uh, only a comedian would learn that. And I feel like Chris Catan's ability to just zip through an apple like like a like a monkey. It reminds me more of a hamster, but I feel like that is something he had to work on and perfect. And it's like he's like one of the he's probably one of the leading apple munchers <laughs> in the world. If you think about it, like how few people pursue this talent. Uh yeah, just a random thought I had. Yeah, uh I remember laughing so hard seeing the rock like humping. I mean uh, to a, a 12 year old seeing humping on tv <laughs> dude that's so funny it was like because it was like in between it was the joy of seeing a wrestler but also with the mentality and spirit of a dog hump it's like two in one <laughs> <laughs> but 
And then the, the thing watching it now, I'm so amazed by is the, I mean, we obviously know Will plays a straight man in the, the well, fair, I say Will like I know him. When he does Alex Trebek, he's somewhat of a straight man, but he really, he, he says so, so, such a star role, such a star that he jumps out at that role. You, you're still watching Will Ferrell. Here, I mean, I was, I didn't really, you know, in all the best ways, there was this is a very invisible supporting performance because, yeah. you know, of course, Chris Kattan is such a physical force, like one of the, another great of SNL. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just seeing Will just be such a pure solid, like I would have not, you know, I, I don't think I would have even known Will Ferrell was in this until I watched it like a second time. Yeah, no, that's fair. You, people don't sometimes give Will Ferrell credit for the other 50% of what he did on SNL because he had so mm-hmm. many standout characters. You just thought, oh, they just always just throw the ball to Will and then he's larger than life and that sells the sketch and that's all you need to know about Will Ferrell. But no, there's just as many times, especially with Chris Kattan, because they were in, in many ways like a, a perfect pairing for their their energies and their styles um yeah there was a lot of times where he had to be generous and give the stage over and to his credit he just he knew he knew when to pull back and he knew when to you know make it his sketch and when to to hand it off and uh it, it made for a lot of great moments between those two performers for sure yeah and it's like such a triumph for the cast because it definitely like the better uh the the host looks it 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 really is attributed to a cast that is not pulling attention to themselves and yep. pulling all that focus. So just like being very generous. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I think the reason why to your point, Franco, so much of this show feels uh, ensemble and, and well-balanced and feels like the performers know how to hand off and how to really work w- within the ensemble. And it doesn't seem like everyone's always vying for the, the limelight. I think that's an outgrowth first off of they've been on the show for about five years, but at least half the cast was pulled from the groundlings at the same time. So a lot of these, Mm. these guys, you know, they, they spent so much time coming up together and they had so much of this back and forth, this shorthand already developed that they brought that camaraderie to the show. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot of why this era holds together so well is you see like Sherry O'Terry and Will Ferrell and you, 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 there's no way that they could have just developed a lot of their back and forth and what, what they brought to the show when they got to SNL, a lot of that already had to be in place and they just had to understand their rhythms and, and it paid dividends in this era. And I think we see a little bit of that here and, you know, throughout the, the episode, but it, the era as a whole, I think uh, it's, it's, I don't think there's been many SNL eras where you get that kind of cohesion. Let's uh let's keep rolling here. We got a lot of show to cover. The easily intimidated hosts of morning latte. Welcome the rock. And in a continuation of the monologue, the WWF jabronis <laughs> once again crashed the show. Okay, uh, Steve, what do, what do you make of this? It's a tried and true format for SNL, but do you feel this was inspired? Maybe not. It's hard to say. Uh, just plucking it out of SNL history and watching it isolated, uh, I was happy to see it. Mm-hmm. These segments, you know, they 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 live in my mind. You know, they they have real estate that's never left. Uh, it's one of the things I think of when I think of uh, Will Ferrell and Sherry O'Terry, which is some of the most amazing pairings <laughs> that you can you can think of when it comes to all the uh, all the duos of of SNL. I just love their energy. I love how like even sitting down, they're never relaxed and they're always ready for the next physical gag, and it's it's just a full body performance from start to finish. Uh, it seems exhausting. 
it's it's definitely like Gilda Radner levels <laughs> of uh, of performance energy coming yeah. from Sherry, and of yeah. course Will. I, I I don't know what powers Will, but it is something <laughs> of of another world. And and the way they play off each other is just so great. So it had it had enough going for it that it was it was fun to watch. It, it would be interesting to see how I would have felt being back then watching every episode at one after another, comparing it to the whole season. Yeah. What do you think, Franco? Did this work for you? Yeah, I remember just being a little jarred. I love the of course energy of Will, like just Steve was just saying. But uh, yeah, I remember. Uh, I, coming in i was like oh this is kind of like why is oh how did we get to the rock singing if they didn't feel like a a smooth transition you know relative to the rest of the show within the sketch is a great in the live performance of everything where we get to see the star and the kind of the the range of the rock singing a muscular man uh able to kind of do something that was considered vulnerable at the time you gotta understand this was the year 2000 no wrestler was singing Um, (laughs) certainly not crooning you know (laughs) sweet ballads yeah for sure certainly not uh i do like the through line because there was a through line throughout it made you know kind of like a kind of like a b story throughout this whole thing the story behind the story um with the wrestlers coming in didn't like but it did i was like oh the singing is kind of like out of nowhere Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was there was definitely some contrivance there, and some yeah, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't call this the smartest sketch that, that we're going to see uh, this evening. Um, my head I have nothing to back this up, but I'm going to assume that this is true. Is part of the reason why The Rock has been asked back five times is because when he came, he obviously set an impression with uh, the folks over at SNL that he's a good sport and he's up for anything, and you know he just he comes to just bring whatever he can. Like he's a consummate performer professional and just game. Um, so my assumption is that somewhere along the line, either, you know, during the pitch meeting or maybe on writer's night or something, um, they, they were probably just spitballing with him and just saying like, what do you like to do? What can you do? Like what, you know, what side of the rock haven't we seen? Like, I think I would be willing to bet the writers were just probing, trying to find something for inspiration. And when he said, I like to sing, you know, like they, they said, well, we can take that and run with it. You know, we, we can certainly, you know, plunk you down in the middle of some tried and true sketch that we know is, is going to work for, you know, uh, for our cast. And, and we can just kind of heap you on top of that, give you a moment to shine. My hunch is that it was probably as simple a conversation as that, that got us to where we are. And that's why I don't think this is a smart sketch, but as just an opportunity to let the rock get out of his box a bit and demonstrate that he is more of a performer and less of a wrestler, which I think is probably what his true goal in all this was, is I want to launch, you know, I want to be taken seriously. I want to be a triple threat. I want to, you know, I want people to know I can do it all. So I think that he was probably really enthusiastic to have an opportunity to do this kind of stuff. So again, nothing to back that up other than, you know, my, my own, you know, fictional (laughs) version of uh, SNL 17th floor. Um, but anyways, that that's what I was seeing when I was watching this. Is oh, this is the Rock trying to just get out of his his comfort zone a little bit. But anyways, it it worked for me. I enjoyed it. Let's keep going. Weekend update for his lead in. Colin Quinn discusses Hillary Clinton being booed at New York St. Patrick's Day parade, the Pope's grand mea culpa, and Timothy McVeigh's unlikely prison pal. Okay, Franco, what'd you think of uh, Colin Quinn's opening salvo here for weekend update? It's it's really interesting with this. Uh, um, just watching it as like a time capsule, mm-hmm. like because it's 1999, but you're like uh, watching now. I'm like, oh man, the Catholic Church has been taking L since 
you know, 1994. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Uh, God, guys, get it together. <laughs> um, uh, and also, yeah, I mean, Colin, I uh, love Colin Quinn, uh, stand-up comedian, love his one-person shows. Oh, they're so great. New York Story is so great. I, I just, I, I, it's hard for me not to watch it from like a, just because Weekend Update is just the most present segment of the entire, or I guess the most topical segment mm. of the entire show. And so the it's never intended to exist beyond the weekend that it aired. Right. Um, so it's really hard to kind of look at, you know, because in, in terms of like writing structure, the, the jokes are always have historically, I've always been like headline, set a punchline, you know, ha- this is the headline, this is the punchline. Sometimes we have a picture as, you know, the punchline. Yeah. Uh, you know, we saw it with the, the Ava Goda that it hit so hard. So it's just really hard to look at it, you know, weekend update from a non- you know, historical yeah. as a, a historical document of the time, you know, sure. you can't really, cause it, it's just, it, of course it works because the structure is very clear. Um, but watching it now, it's just, you have no, you know, it's so irrelevant to me now because so much 22 years has passed. Yeah. <laughs> right. But some things still say the same mm-hmm. uh, as with the Catholic church and sure. <laughs> Fair enough. not liking Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Some, From the, Boston, the, surprisingly, yeah, not the, surprising. the more things change, the more they stay the same. Exactly. Uh, Steve, what do you got on Weekend Update? Uh, I'll say that uh, Colin Quinn was never my favorite Weekend Update host. Doesn't mean I didn't want him to be doing the job. You know, there wasn't someone I rathered be there at the time. Uh, maybe Norm, but that's why I kind of respect him taking the job because, I mean, he was taking a vacant seat that was left by a firing. That was rather unpopular, you know, from the perspective of fans. Like this wasn't an Andy Kaufman situation where he was voted off the show. This was at a higher level executive saying he can't be on the show anymore. So anybody who takes that job after that is going to be, I don't think, uh, fairly judged. Sure. Everybody's just going to want what they had. Mm -hmm. You know, we liked what we had. Why did you get rid of it? There was nothing wrong with it. So, yeah. That might have tainted it, but I, you know, I still think he did a, a pretty good job. What I like about his style is he always seems to have one foot out the door. You know, <laughs> he shows up like, I'll wear a tie, but it's going to be a clip on. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you, you'll just see it. Like what other weekend update anchor have you seen? Like, say, look, now you made me have to start the, the joke right. again. Yeah. Like that was a very unique way of dealing with a mess up compared to what I've seen of late. And, uh, you know, his reaction to the Salman Rushdie joke, uh, was also very kind of tongue in cheek. And it it said what it needed to say about the the quality of, of the material he was reading. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'll say. Like on the negative side is that, you know, even trying to muddle my way through like the datedness of this, I still feel like, it wasn't the strongest material. Like they didn't write to, you know, the peaks of that era, I would say, but who knows? Maybe it was all that bad. Uh, It's hard to say. I'd have to like, go back and give it a real watch. Yeah. It it was interesting with the, the, I don't remember the Osama bin Laden joke that they had in there, but just like seeing how, you know, obviously hindsight's 2020, but like just seeing how, wow, they really didn't know anything about him at the time. And it's just (laughs) reminiscent of like, I'm sure people are going to watch episodes of SNL from March 20, you know, was it 2020? It's been so long where it's like, Oh yeah, there was a, 
a reality TV show that was talking about coronavirus right. and they didn't see it coming at all either. And yeah, so I mean, <clears throat> it's really interesting to see. Yeah, it, it's definitely hard to figure out how this worked at the time because obviously the material isn't as close to our hearts as it would be to the people there who are reading the news and, you know, like absorbed in what the world looks like in 2000. Um, so it, it, you know, it's hard to say one way or another. Um, I think you're right, Steve, that Colin Quinn, I think he thought that part of his persona or part of what he was going to bring to weekend update was that nonchalance sort of that, um, I'm going to throw it away a bit because I, I don't care, like just a little too cool for school sort of thing. Because you do see that a lot. Like if a, if a joke bombs or whatever, he's like the first one to sort of mock himself over it. So you can tell he's not very precious about the material. Yeah. And sometimes that works because it can disarm uh, a really cold room. Like it, it can it can help people get back into it when a joke does bomb. But at the same time, if you don't believe in your material, sometimes it's hard to sell yeah. it too so it cuts both ways and uh yeah it, it's very hard to figure out because he had such a short tenure whether he would have grown into the role more whether this was as good as it was going to get who knows yeah but uh, it's certainly a product of the time and i i just don't think there's a whole lot else we could say to you know yeah. do justice to such topical material so why don't we jump into our first feature renowned political cartoonist jasper hahn stops by to discuss the 2000 presidential front runners okay steve Horatio Sands. <laughs> is this the character now in, in hindsight that, that we wanted from Horatio Sands? <laughs> I feel like after you gave us the lecture on, you know, judging this in the moment, maybe you should set the tone and go first. Nope. I'm hanging out to dry. This is yeah. all you, baby. <laughs> yeah. I did not expect you to go for that. Uh, help. I, you know, for, for all you just said, let's just, uh, you know, I can say that uh, this was, this was a, a creative, kind of impressive uh, little thing he had going here. It's uh, it's something you would see like in Mad Magazine or something, right? Like it's it's a visual yeah. gag and made me realize just how little this kind of thing was tapped into. Uh, it seems like a big risk to take. If you screw up that picture at any point <laughs> in your in your live show, like you don't have the time to start again. If it doesn't end up taking form of what it's supposed to, the whole thing just falls flat. So it's a big risk. So I, I can appreciate the amount of practice that went into it and the the artistic talent <laughs> that it actually does take to do this. It, it reminds me of that Halsey performance. I know you sure. remember, John. Yeah. Uh, I love me some Halsey. Oh, I know. I know. I'm going to tease you every time her name drops out of my mouth. Um uh, <laughs> But yeah, like how, how impressive was that, that she like painted that whole picture? Uh, uh, I forget who it was, so I'm not going to guess. Um, but yeah, she, she got the whole picture done within the song. And, and mm -hmm. that's what it reminded me of. A, a more simpler, more comedic version, of course, but sure, still a big risk. And uh, it seemed to uh, go relatively well. Um, okay. <laughs> so, Franco, uh, were, you, were you on board with Horatio Sands political cartoons? Dude, 12-year-old uh, Franco thought this was the funniest thing. <laughs> sure. A uh, guy dri driving boobies on TV? This that's, is, uh, that's this so is genius. <laughs> this is 
this is my Groucho Marx. Uh, this is my Oscar Wilde. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even now, I think it's so funny. I mean, I, I, I'm not following the news too much closely with the, you know, the dark stuff with Horatio Sands. Mm-hmm. That aside, as much as we can put it aside, uh, maybe we shouldn't, I don't know, talk to me after, at me. Um, <laughs> but um, the, yeah, I mean, I thought it was really so funny. I mean, because it's like a play on it and you don't see it coming. And also, like, you know, I mean, I sometimes do have to say, like, I don't always, and, you know, I love Colin Quinn as a stand-up. I I feel like the constraints of delivering someone else's monologue might not be ideal because, like, I think the weekend update job sometimes feels like you have to be really proficient in, like, kind of delivering clarity with someone else's joke. And, um, but where, like, the other unspoken or unsung skill of the weekend update person is being the straight person for the feature, uh, the, you know, for the features. Mm-hmm. And, um, he was, I mean, I keep talking about all the supporting, but he was so funny in this one too. He's yeah. like saying like, just, I think it's the New York accent being like, sure. Hey, get out of here with your dirty pictures. Right. <laughs> like that was like, it makes it so the scene so much better. Cause you can feel the, like, the disdain, yeah. you know, of, <laughs> no, of, no patience for her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, he, mm. as a New Yorker, he probably sees this filth 24 <laughs> seven. So he knows it's coming. These are savvy New Yorkers who've seen filth on a daily basis. And it just makes the impatience, right. Uh, so much more real. And then it makes the goofiness of Horatio's character <laughs> so much more ridiculous. Because when he goes, Gore, it's like, what are you doing? Um, so I love the, you know, the contrast and like that, the whole, the, the piece with both of them and the character itself. Man, uh, uh, that was so funny. Like, I, I, I won't tell anyone I, I enjoy it now in public. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I, I always have a, a soft spot in my comedic sensibilities for just juvenile potty humor, uh, schoolyard, uh, I don't know, just gross out scatological stuff. I, uh, I, I, I think my comedic taste peaked at around 12. So <laughs> this to me is timeless. I'll, I'll always uh-huh. giggle at this kind of stupidity and, uh, full disclosure. I didn't, I didn't realize it, but I used to do this bit when I was like, I don't know, 20 and still had a social life and i'd like go to Eastside mario's or something with some friends you know how they'd put like paper down on the table and you could draw on it like they yeah. leave some crayons or something on the table i would always do this like draw something that was so obviously <laughs> you know perverted and then turn it into an elephant or turn it into you know something uh to make everyone else think that they're just seeing what they want to see uh as opposed to me just being a deviant <laughs> little monkey um i didn't realize it but I wonder if maybe I did that because I saw this back in the day. Cause I have no recollection of Horatio right. Sands doing this bit. I'm sure he did it a few times on the show, but I wonder if maybe, maybe that's where I picked that up from. But this is, that's something that I've always had fun doing when given the opportunity. And, uh, it was just kind of a blast from the past to see it uh, on the show. And, uh, yeah, just the, the, the silliness and stupidity of it all won me over immediately. And so that's, that's where I land on it. Um, what do we think? about Jimmy Fallon stopping by to share his excitement about going on spring break. Steve, uh, Jimmy Fallon, a uh, little bit of musical comedy here. I think he's lucky to get it on. Yeah. <clears throat> it's a couple of parody songs. He's, I guess, trying to do the, the voice uh, somewhat of the performers. Mm-hmm. It all revolves around spring break. So yeah, it's, it's competent. It has, you know, 
it's it's understandable. Nobody's scratching their head. Oh, what the hell is this all about? It's just some funny <laughs> parody songs. Certainly not deep. What do you think, Franco? Anything here worth uh, digging into? I mean, uh, I, I, I I enjoy it. I got to say, I mean, <laughs> all the things that Steve doesn't like, I'm like, yeah, that's good. I think it's a, it's a bunch of parody songs. Yeah, we yeah. love these hit songs. I it's don't a, understand, Steve. You're describing <laughs> all the good things and all then saying it's things. bad. I mean, you say parody, I say a, a reimagining of, <laughs> uh, he's the kid's bop for 13 year olds at the time. Um, you gotta understand the, the year was two, uh, 2000. There was no kid's bop. Um, and he was, you know, I, I remember watching it and thinking like, wow. And identifying with Jimmy Fallon. I'm like, I think I'm a cute boy. Um, <laughs> and he's playing guitar. I'm like, Whoa, he's playing. I think I'm do I'm doing this right now. I'm, I'm him. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, I mean, playing the guitar. I think when John, when you used the phrase musical comedy, mm-hmm. uh, it made me look at, I was like, you know what? Sketch alone. You kind of look at pieces, but in the whole scope of the entire episode, we're seeing a wide range right. of things that are kind of holding our attention. Even though the rock thing singing at the end, uh, was like kind of like a little bit jarring for me. I do think in the scope of the entire episode, I'm like, wow, it's we're still this is incredibly entertaining, mm-hmm. and as a, a cohesive as a whole episode, it's incredibly cohesive. And so with the weekend update, throwing in Jimmy Fallon, getting this like kind of infusion of hot young boy, um, <laughs> but also great musical cute talent with pop songs of the era in a, a thing that all us young teenagers or young uh, preteens hope to enjoy one day, which is spring break and going to cool college. Dude, <laughs> what, what more can you ask for? Um, okay. So we, we ran the gamut on that one. That's awesome because my hunch is that that's basically what Jimmy Fallon was hired to do was to be the resident young guy and court the next generation that, you know, want to have someone on the show to identify with. Yeah. Um, and this, this was his kind of his tried and true stuff. This is what he brought to the show. He auditioned with a lot of this kind of, musical Curls, parody voices yeah. impression stuff um so i i think you know he's before there was a pete davidson and after there was an adam sandler there was jimmy fallon and obviously the show knew what they were doing because you know it, there, there's a segment of the audience that it really worked for now in hindsight as you know grown-ass men i don't know just how much you know maybe steve and i can can uh get on get on board with it because it is kind of lightweight in in a way too like there isn't a whole lot here but i can totally see how at the time there would be a big swath of like newly initiated SNL viewers that would be totally down with Jimmy Fallon. Um, my only other thought on it is it made me feel so old. You know, he's parodying <laughs> Blink-182, Rob Thomas, Dave Matthews Band. And I'm thinking, oh, that's right. I, I used to be young and things felt important. And, you know, like that oh, was like boy. my era of music. And then I'm just thinking that was 22 years ago. That was more than that. What, what was this? This was 2000. That was... 22 years, yeah, 20, 22, 22 years, years ago. Yeah. And uh, I'm just thinking, where does the time go? And uh, yeah, so Jimmy Fallon made me feel very old. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that's all I got. You guys got <laughs> anything else on Weekend Update or you want to get into the back half of the show? Let's, let's do that. Let's all do right. That. So to kick off the back half of the show, we get our first musical performance, which the show was a little bit more fast and loose with their, their placement of musical performances back in the day. ACDC performed Stiff Upper Lip. And then for their second number, you shook me all night long. Um, Steve, uh, resident musician, what, what do you make of this? 
Well, it's it's interesting, you know, because as we know, uh, ACDC makes a point to reinvent themselves album per album. So uh, we <laughs> why is no one laughing? That's clearly a lie. Well, I was I was going to dignify you and, and let you and let you explore that thought, but in my head I'm going, well, that that could not be less true. But whatever, let let him say his piece. Yeah, <laughs> they have a sound. But they know what they my are. Point, yeah, my point is the opposite of what I just said. Uh, okay. This is a band that knows exactly <laughs> what they are. Yes, you know they don't hire a new singer when their singer dies and say, you know, just just do what you feel is best for the band. They say. Right. Do you what that to, guy did. You have to do exactly what the guy you're replacing did. Right. That's why you're here, because you can do that. Right. Uh, but hey, you know, they stuck to their guns, um, never had a fourth chord. <laughs> and it, even though what they do is in, so incredibly simple, uh, it is rock solid. You can't deny that. This is a yeah. tight band. If you go to an ACDC show, I don't know about these days, but at, at this point, they were still, you know, everybody was there. Uh, Malcolm Young hasn't, you know, started to deteriorate yet. Uh, I remember thinking, you know, they were getting up there at the time and, and it seems that they're still trying to have a way at it. Uh, I think Brian Johnson is back in the band, but you know what? It was tough to watch because my throat physically hurt watching (laughs) Brian sing. That's very true. Like it looks like it really hurts to sing like that. And how do you do a 50-year career of that. Like, how does that work? Yes. I mean, you're, it must be like a workout and like your body just has no choice but to strengthen itself against it. Right. It, it's like, you know, it's like training for a marathon, I guess. <laughs> you just scream your throat muscles into submission. Yeah, but uh, that's what I'm saying. Like, ACDC, the only reason they put out new albums is to have something new to sell because they're not you know, like I was pretending to say, <laughs> reinventing themselves yeah. in any way. You know what you get. I, I was going to say that this was just them like playing their, their greatest hits. But honestly, you know, you wouldn't, you couldn't differentiate it in, in a lot of ways. Um, aside from, they, you know, they do some more traditionally bluesy stuff. Like every album has a few deep cuts that uh, stray away from sort of the garage rock sound and get a little bit more. And they, you know, some decent blues, decent solos, but, uh, yeah, ACDC is about as straightforward as you're going to get for a musical performance. Uh, Franco, were you on board? Do you love you some ACDC? I, uh, I know the songs from trailers, but I'm not really too familiar with ACDC. And I remember 12 year old Franco being very upset. <laughs> I was just like, why is my best friend's dad's favorite band on the right. show? It's not, why can't we have one of those bands? Jimmy Fallon was parodying mm-hmm. on the show. Um, I have a but, theory. Yeah. Someone said, hey, we have the rock hosting. Let's get a rock band. Wow. And, and they thought yeah. that would be very funny. That's that's clever. Okay. <laughs> that's really clever. We thought well, so. uh, that's the deep kind of analysis that we bring you in for. <laughs> um, I, I got nothing else on the musical performance. You, you guys ready to move on? Yeah. yeah. All right. Back half of the show. We get a live sketch. Clark Kent's colleagues at the Daily Planet aren't buying Superman's flimsy cover stories. Franco, what would you make of this one? Uh, I my favorite thing about the sketch is um, Chris Parnell. I mean, just the range he plays throughout this show is such is it's incredible. As the range, like you see ranges in like leading roles, but the range in supporting roles and constantly supporting like and the voice. I don't know. This like it's not a different voice, but it's a different character, and that's mm-hmm. very challenging to do because he's bringing something more than just sound. 
you know, it's mannerism, it's pacing, it's all that. So my favorite thing about the the sketch is Chris Parnell. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, some of the jokes are are dated in its homophobia, but um, I aside from that, like if they didn't lead into that territory, <laughs> it could have been like time. Like it's a very I think Conan had like a Superman sketch as well at some point, but maybe I'm misremembering. Molecular uh, yeah. man, yeah. Yeah, they something like that. Yeah, I think every generation of the show has yeah. had something, something About, Superman. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Super, something Superman, and it's stupid. It, like it's obviously Clark, Clark Kent, but um, yeah, Chris Parnell. Oh man, MVP of this episode. Very good, Steve. What do you think? I mean, it's fun, but it's also very typical. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's an organic train of thought, of course. You know, oh, we got a big burly guy. He looks like a superhero, and surprise, surprise, he's playing black adam now so uh (laughs) makes sense right it's it's just like it's just a simple thought experiment it's like you know uh they they expect us to believe that nobody notices that this is not clark kent or clark kent and and superman are the same person you know it's nobody buys the the putting the glasses on and, and disappearing uh so why not make it ridiculous you know if we're already not buying it, like let's let's just make it as obvious as possible and, and play with the the cartoonishness of that, right? And and I I like how they settled on on little things like the the kind of bickering like almost playground bully style of taunting they do. It's uh, interesting, you know. I don't think I'd be so comfortable doing that to a guy who could easily <laughs> beat the crap out of me. But hey, it's a funny little sketch, and and yeah. My thought, this is a, a fun premise, a, a really fun starting point. Um, but I don't think it was really competently explored. I think there was a lot of other places this could have gone um, that, that would have done more justice to the idea of challenging comic book world logic. Yeah. You know, like in the comic book, a pair of glasses and slicking your hair back is all you need to have a, a bulletproof persona you know, to throw people off the scent that you're Superman that works in the comic. Cause it's just comic book logic. If that's the way it's, it is on the page, that's what you have to, to buy into. So to question that and to, you know, de- deconstruct it a little bit and, and, you know, say like, really like who's buying this, that it's, it's uh, an idea that's been explored many times on many different shows over, over the years. Um, but it's been done better. And uh, that, that's where I feel this falls down. Not that they didn't have a great, um, performer in the rock to, to be Superman. You know, it's great that they could put him in tight clothes where his Superman costume is like peeking out of his cuffs and out of his sleeves. Like there, there was a lot of little, little funny ideas and nods in, in how it was produced. But I just feel like the kind of like the, 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 the playground um, politics of, trying to mess with him because they know he's not going to come clean. Like there, there's just something that just wasn't as smart about how they, they went about trying to, to play up this, this idea that, um, mm. yeah, just at the end of it, I wasn't left satisfied. I just felt like it should have gone somewhere else. Yeah. Fair. Moving right along. After that, we get a pre-tape not to be outdone by HBO's the Sopranos showtime debuts. Mm-hmm. It's bold new original series, the Goombas. Okay. Franco, what do you make of this? Very, very brief little, pre-tape i thought it was a uh, uh an appropriate length for <laughs> sure. the, the premise yeah i mean it's like a pretty straightforward sketch it's really funny and i mean i i wasn't watching sopranos at the time but 
I'm sure, I mean, everyone always refers to Sopranos as being like kind of like the first major kind of step into the golden age of television. Right. Yeah. But I didn't don't have that context when I was watching the sketch. I was like, hey, this is funny and short. Um, and it's great to see Anna. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's, I mean. <laughs> hey, if it works, it works. Who, who cares how yeah. you get there if you, if you had some fun with it? What, what did you make of this one, Steve? It's, it's a funny thought, you know, that uh, networks often see something that's successful and they say, well, we want some of that success. Right. And, uh, you know, something like The Sopranos is so great because it's made by someone who understands the culture, the community, the lifestyle. And, you know, once that product is made, then everybody else can look at this product and say, okay, well, that's, you know, this is what the finishing result looks like. Let's try to make something that resembles it without fully understanding how it comes to that from the surface. You know, they're, they're writing from the wrong direction entirely. So you get some kind of heartless pastiche that just misses the point. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's, that's the gag here. They make the gag, they get the hell out of there. So I respect them for it. They had something to say and, and they, they said it. Yeah. This was a triumph of editing. If this had stuck around for 15 seconds more, I would have been like, no, shut yeah. it down. Um, yeah, I think you, you hit it, the nail on the head there, Steve. And that, that's basically my only, the only point that I want to make was I think the, the funny here, the, the, the core idea is that Sopranos took off and was such a great hit that you've got far less inspired executives at a rival network saying, how can we top that? Like, how can we find the same kind of success and take it to another level? And they watch the Sopranos, but because they are terrible executives and not creative, they watch the Sopranos and they think that the success of the show rests in the, um, mafia stereotypes. And so they say, well, okay, we can make a better mafia show than this. And they just pull out the most shallow <laughs> Italian tropes and think that that's, what's going to sell their show and make it an equivalent piece of art to the Sopranos. All you need is, you know, the Italian taglines and, and just the, you know, all of the, 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 the greasy kind of Goomba uh, aesthetic. And that's, that's our show. That's our winning ticket. So it, it was just such a nice comment on how terrible television gets made. Mm-hmm. And I was really amused by that. And if it had stuck around, like I said, for 10 seconds more, that would, that notion would have faded. And I would have said, oh, okay, yeah, there's, there's nowhere else for you guys to go with this. You really got to shut it down. So I was really happy with how quickly this came and went. There you go. There you go. Moving we, right we along. Should do the same. There you go. Yes. Moving right <laughs> along. If we linger 10 seconds more, um, we get a live sketch, a husband and wife explain how Nicotrell can help you quit smoking. And in a continuation of the morning latte sketch, the WWF jabronis crashed the show to beat the snot out of Chris Parnell. Okay, Steve, uh, this is very SNL right up until the point where they break the fourth wall. Uh, was this working for you? Sure. It, it plays almost dreamlike. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you, you know, you have to excuse the lack of realism in, in choices made by characters because it's, it's telling a very specific story and getting a certain idea across it. I think, I think they found something that works here. Uh, What I love about it is that it kind of shifts focus. Like they make the joke they want to make, and then it becomes something different as, as it plays out. It it becomes more about the brutality and the, how extreme this violence is. Cause like, once you start getting the joke, you, you expect something like maybe like a, a Will Smith level slap in the face. Hey, don't smoke. But like this guy is like beating him within the <laughs> within inches of his life, you know, to the point where they pretty much give an ending to the sketch and then it does not end because they have the 
the wrestling friends come back right. and, and just go to town on the guy. So it's like, you know, we have our idea. We've, we've, you know, said what we're going to say. And then, uh, yeah, we're just going to have some, some violence porn for you, basically. <laughs> and Chris Parnell sold the hell out of it. Sometimes yeah, I threw even him through wondered, that window. I, I was believing it. Yeah. Like yeah. some of those punches, I think may have accidentally connected, but yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it was shallow fun. <laughs> I felt like I was watching wrestling. Fair enough. Franco, what'd you make of this one? I think a uh, 12 year old Franco thought this was the greatest sketch. It was sure. the favorite of the night. 12 year old Franco. Um, just cause it was wrestling in a sketch form. And I think, yeah, I mean, cause it, the violence was funny it was so so hilarious i think watching it now i'm like because i don't watch wrestling as much and it's been years since i've watched it a little part of me was like oh i hope he's okay (laughs) um (laughs) what a fun thing i I really love about this watching it as a you know a huge fan of chris parnell is seeing a hint of kind of that comedic emasculate um, you know for lack of a better word i never say this word uh cuck sure. <laughs> choice you know <laughs> well this so is a good you, context to use it this is yeah i uh, hope uh, yeah please uh, refer to the glossary um <laughs> so uh don't at me the <laughs> uh but like yeah because we know you know chris Marnell is the voice of cyril and archer and is it gary from uh rick and morty is gary the husband yes no, gary. no, no but he is he is the husband yes he's what's he's his the dad gary it's the, What's his it's name? Beth, yeah, Beth, Jerry, Rick, Jerry, Jerry. Of course, yeah, Jerry. My bad. Yeah, but Jerry. Just that moment in the sketch where he's like, "Get your hands off my <laughs> wife!" And then, just, "Please, man!" Like just that jump makes that like it's like you. It's like if you were casting Rick and Morty for the voices, and you watch the sketch, you're like, "This guy has the yeah, job." That's the real. Uh, yeah, yeah. That was his audition. It, sure. Yeah, honestly, it's like you put that. But that just that moment in your real, your voice real. I think the breaking of the, of the fourth wall. I, I felt like that's when it was kind of it. It didn't heighten it too much. It felt like a lateral move to me mm-hmm. a little bit. If I'm being a stickler, yep. Um, it, be, I, it was very uh, suitable to bring us back to the runner. But I think as uh, in the self-contained sketch, it didn't. It was kind of like a lateral move because the. The violence in itself of itself was not so different, and the misdirect of the rock going, "You have to hit him harder," was not as misdirecting, and because it wasn't as a uh, you know viscerally, viscerally satisfying, because we had already seen him beat him up. Yeah, so yeah. maybe it's like you it's know, just it's more of it. It's not necessarily grander in any way. Yeah, the yeah. stickler in me says, and we had already seen him hit him with like objects, like he went out a window already. Like, yeah, how do you he went out from the window. That? Yeah, exactly. So, do we save like you know the editor, comedy editor, and me is like, okay, why don't we just save that and move the throw at the end? That way, we can save it for when we right. break the wall. We save that later. Um, but of course, you know, again, I'm not writing for them, so what do I know? <laughs> and when you yeah. when you show up on Tuesday and you got a show to put on on Saturday, you don't always get to rethink your your sketches and reshuffle them and. You know, sometimes it's yeah. just, you know, you, you can only, you can't overthink it at SNL as much. So sometimes yeah. you get a, a sketch that seems to peak in the middle, but then linger a little, little too long. Um, and there's stunts and props that you have to talk with as well. Yeah. yeah. Where you're there's, like, oh, well, this coordinator wants you to be this way. It's safer yeah. this way. Exactly. Don't, we don't have a, we don't have the insurance to wave uh, for Triple H to throw them. And if you grab anyways. Yeah. yeah no, but that, that's, <laughs> that's very true because they would have to have 
like the blocking and the the basic beats and structure of this locked earlier because you're not wrong. They need to have a coordinator in there. They need to be able to do a little bit more prep uh, to make sure everyone's on the same page and safe. And, you know, like the, it's a whole nother level of production when you have this many people doing this much physicality, breakaway walls and all the rest of it. So, uh, yeah, there's only so much time to write it before you have to say, okay, this is what we got. Now we need to figure out how to actually perform it. Yeah. Um, my, my feeling on this, um, well, I had, I had a few thoughts, but my, my big thought on it was this was the part of the show where I thought, okay, this runner with the wrestlers is no longer paying dividends for me because at this point it's derailing a sketch that I wanted them to go further with. I think that there was so much gold that they could have mined in this idea of, um, you know, a a guy basically invading your home at your behest to, to try and knock some sense into you. But this guy also doesn't really have any boundaries and he starts to kind of like invade and take over your life. I feel like there's just so much they could have done there. They scratched the surface with him macking on Anagastar a little bit, but they, they could have had so many more little comedic beats that were in that vein of the rock sort of reappropriating his life on him and him just being sort of like sequestered and cuckold for, you know, <laughs> you know for lack of a better term. Uh, I, I like that idea. And I, I think the reason why I wanted to see that explored is because this is something that I think SNL has done very well. And I, and I think this would have been an opportunity for them to maybe even go further with it. Back in uh, the f- the first era of SNL, they had the um, like the dad insurance where if if the dad dies, Chevy Chase will come in. He'll put his face over your wedding pictures and sit down and start feeling up your wife and your kids will call him dad. Like they had a commercial about this kind of a thing where uh, a taller, handsomer version of you kind of steps into your life and, you know, emasculates you in front of your family. Um I, I wanted, I, I would have liked to have seen something more of that. Um, and I feel like this could have been a good vehicle for it, but you got the wrestlers in the house and uh, they, they wanted to go a different direction and it is what it is. It's just, it turned into the sketch that I didn't want to see and it started out so promising. So that, mm. that was my feeling on that guy. Moving on. We get another live sketch on today's lady. Three liberated ladies abandon their convictions to compete for a beefy slab of man meat. Okay, Franco, what did you uh, make of this one? Um, I li- I like the seeing um, Rachel Dratch in it. She, you know, the interesting quality. She kind of gives me like the same. Her, I mean, I would love to see a project where um, Rachel Dratch and Kevin McDonald play siblings because mm. I think they kind of have That's a similar true. kind of like a wholesomeness in yep. their eyes. They're wide, you know? they're very wide eyed. Yeah, very much so. Yep. Yeah, and kind of yeah. So I mean. And that wig was, was helping to sell that too. She, she could have pulled off a Kevin McDonald impression there. Oh, she's a missed opportunity. She could have. All right. I'm I'm digging this. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure if the cough was improvised, if that was real or not. The Gwyneth Paltronian. Um, Mm. I remember really thinking that was so funny. I mean, I feel like that's something that they uh, also heard that like, it's kind of like a a faux pas. You don't want to have too many parody names because it pulls you out of the the sketch the premise that you're trying to establish and Mm -hmm. you know you get a laugh early on when you're trying to set up if you're uh, building the world you don't want people dwelling on the name you want them yeah investing in the sketch yeah yeah you want the big laugh at the turn generally or at like traditionally um so but i don't know if that was on purpose but i mean we're still in the sketch we're you know this is you know the late late part of the the sketch show so this is zany town 
we're getting close to. <laughs> what do you think, Steve? Well, yeah, first of all, we got three of the funniest women to ever have been on SNL, <laughs> which is great. Uh, it's, it's a funny concept. You know, uh, it, they're, they're definitely making a point to say that they're not doing a good job of representing the modern woman. And it's, it's not like this is that dated, you could say, because they've made similar sketches as of late that I think kind of explore the same thing, that dilemma of, you know, presenting yourself as a woman who respects themselves, but, you know, still having that side of them that goes giddy over cute mm -hmm. boys. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to say too much about it just to, just to avoid any potential trouble. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I'll just say like the performances were great. Uh, it's great to see all three of these women. And I think this is the first season for Rachel, right? So this is yep, she's you know, a future probably player. on the higher oh. end of her involvement with the show here. So that's, mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, it's really nice to see her that. breaking that's out. That's great trivia. Yeah, there's, uh, this, is, this is one of those situations where the more I talk about it, the, the more trouble I'm going to get in because uh, I... I enjoy the sketch. I enjoy what they're presenting. I know that there's a lot of people that hold themselves to a higher standard. So this, this could feel a little bit uh, undermining of their cause. You know, if, if you are a, you know, liberated woman. Um, but I, I like sketches that try to cast a little bit of light on some uncomfortable truths about the human condition. Cause we're all kind of hypocrites a little bit in a lot of ways. You know, you could be a very sophisticated person and, and, put on airs and, and really kind of be in control of your, your persona and how you present yourself to the world. But there's always going to be little things that just tickle you the right way. And, and you kind of revert. I think about like when I'm around my family, like my extended family, I know that I kind of like turn back into more of a more juvenile version of myself or with some of my friends from my youth, when we get together, um, there's a, there's just a, there's a different version of me deep down inside that I don't see very often, but occasionally when it comes up, uh, it's, it's just kind of weird to know that, oh, there's, we're all multifaceted and there's lots of different things that can kind of throw us off kilter and get the better of us. And so I like it when a sketch kind of does that. Um, but you know, there's probably some people that maybe just wouldn't want to joke too, too heavily about that sort of thing. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, I, I thought that this was saying something that I think there was a kernel of truth to, and I kind of liked I kind of like that. Yeah. 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 I mean, totally. I think like the sketch in it of like skewing the genre of woman talk show yeah, yeah. of as to what it was like, the, I mean, the worst parts of the genre of like what the view is. I'm thinking of like a, a parrot, uh, a quick joke on the Simpsons where it's like tonight on so-and-so talk. And then the first line is men and everyone goes, Boo! <laughs> because it's like, sometimes the discussion is not as nuanced. Like this is not right. A, and this is not to conflate feminism and like just to create a clear distinction between feminism and a talk show that sometimes can be anti-feminism anti-feminist because the structure of the genre can be very limiting um yeah but we're, we're talking about a 20 year old sketch about subject matter that i don't know if any of us are truly qualified to go any no. deeper on so let's jump into our 10 to 1 Definitely free not. tape <laughs> yes ah <laughs> uh, Colonel Belmont's old-fashioned horse glue is still made from the choicest hooves, bones, hair, internal organs, and whatever gets caught in the machine. Steve, this is how we end the night. Yeah. What'd you think? You know, I, I, I'm on board for this. I think this is how we should uh, be paying our dues as a society. If we're going to 
enjoy these these fruits uh, of our labor at the expense of you know living things. That should come with a regular reminder that uh, it's not so pretty behind the scenes. You know, <laughs> you don't want to know how the sausage is made. Yeah. It, yes, and when we put this, how the sausage is made, and make it the forefront of your marketing, you get this, and it's mm-hmm. uh, it's gross, it's disturbing. And it's all the things that you would expect from, you know, just the very premise of it. If you were to read it on paper. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, I'm still going to use glue. I mean, <laughs> I still ate chicken after I saw them cut that poor cartoon chicken's head off. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Cluckies chicken. Yeah. Cluckies, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's in the same vein of that. And it's yeah. a, it's a good avenue to go to. Very good. All right. That was, uh, yeah, well, that was a take. What do you got, Franco? <laughs> uh, I, I really, I enjoy the production of it. I enjoyed, obviously, like the way it looks, the feel of a commercial. I enjoyed uh, Will Ferrell playing the, the, you know, not out loud, out, like, demonstrating that the, the constraint and the realness of this character that he's playing. I love Chris Paul and again, MVP in supporting roles. Um, I think I might not be the demographic for this commercial because I just didn't, I have no reference to it. I didn't know horse. I just never knew glue was made from horse hooves. And I'm I'm kind of just figuring it out as I'm watching it, as they're making reference to it, where they're like the fridge magnets, you know, uh, I think they something about childhood construction paper. So in that moment, I'm like, okay, there's a connection here. Oh, okay. I guess horse hooves, maybe this is a common product that we're not, it, we don't, it, it's used in these things and this is bringing attention to it and mm. it's bringing it to our conscious. I didn't know that I was that, or maybe that it's changed and it used to be like that in the seventies. Like, I think I'm asking too many questions <laughs> as the, as a viewer, whereas like comedy, you, it's, you know, really good comedy delivers a point in a subversive way where you don't even think about it. It just hits you later here. I'm like asking a lot of questions early on. And I think, you know, traditional, improv and sketches the first in the platform you you answer the question who what where and i'm still i have so many questions of like what is it about the glue because i don't really know no that's that's okay no we we don't always have the background to be able to embrace a sketch on, on first glance <laughs> that's totally totally fair now interestingly i do have the background to be able to process this sketch um but maybe mm-hmm. maybe not in the way that it was meant to be taken because i grew up in rural southwestern ontario and there was a time when I was on a friend's farm and we watched a horse get dragged away and hauled into the, into the, uh, you know, this, this truck, this, this trailer to be hauled off, to be processed. So I, um, I have a, a childhood trauma that gets, uh, heaped on top of the sketch that, um, uh, if if I you know if I wasn't already dead inside, it, it might have actually made the sketch less funny for me. But I found the sketch hilarious, just despite the childhood trauma. <laughs> You've been using tape and nails ever since. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, I I love when SNL takes something very scatological or biological or just gross or just something that makes you uneasy, and they wrap it in all the trappings of uber wholesomeness. You know, this is, yeah, these are yeah. old timey country values and, and, you know, the, this rancher is talking with, you know, the, the soothing drawl and everything about it is just, uh, this, this is old timey country living at its best and the, the salt of the earth. And 
you know, what he's saying is devastating, you know, like, you know, we, it takes four horses to, to make one bottle of glue and, you know, like, you know, we, we, we grind them up, we take the hooves and, you know, we just throw out the rest of it to rot. Like, it's just, it's a very, it's a very dark, uh, subject matter in, in a lot of ways, but it's presented so brightly. And I just, I always love that contrast. I love that juxtaposition. Um, so this, this had me grinning. I enjoyed this. And, and I had forgotten about this when they do a pre-tape back in the day, it took so much to produce them that they'd have to produce them like ahead of the season or mid season, but then they would use them on a lot of episodes whenever they needed to fill up some time, you know, cause the show clock got a little skew or whatever. So you would see these several times throughout a season, but I totally forgotten about this one. And it was, it was a joy to see it again. And uh, yeah, it, it, it tickled me in many ways between trauma and delight. Okay. Let's get into our overall ratings and thoughts. Franco moment of the night. What took it for you? Moment of the night. Ooh. Ugh. What is the moment of the night? I I think I think the opening was very strong, and mm-hmm. I think that was the moment. I think and specific moment, Big Show, the chair that Big Show, the that reveal. I left it. The opening, there. yeah, the opening was. I thought it was like so good. Yep, and inventive. Okay, uh, what about you, Steve? What was your moment? Just off the top of my head, I'm going to go with uh, when he broke out into song. Because okay. even like today, having seen uh, Dwayne Johnson become Dwayne Johnson and be this huge, you know, highest paid movie star, I still didn't know he could sing half decently. So that's something yeah, I learned about the the guy. And he was uh, in Moana. He uh, he oh, has a big Disney it? musical. Mel Gibson sang in friggin' Pocahontas. That don't mean nothing. <laughs> uh, <Fair laughs> I can give you that one. Yeah, sure. I'm going with the moment in the Mr. Peepers sketch where Papa Peepers is revealed and Mr. Peepers runs off to the corner and he is visibly quaking and intimidated by this alpha male, this, you know, the silverback <laughs> gorilla that has now like invaded the, the scene. Um, it's just such a fun little performance beat. And I, I just, I love how dialed in Chris Kattan is with those kind of characters where every part of his body is is part of the character. If his hands are shaking, if he's darting his eyes, you know, like he looks, he, he looks like a trapped animal in that moment or an animal that's, you know, worried that his, his dad's going to eat him. Um, and it just, it, you know, it, it was just a subtle, simple, quick little cut to him. And, uh, I don't know. I just, I think that that, that really helps sell the sketch of the dynamic between Papa peepers and baby peepers. And it just, I don't know. It tickled me. So that's my moment. <laughs> yeah, not bad. All righty. How about best overall sketch? What do you think, Franco? I, I, if the first sketch, the opening is considered a sketch and that's the option. I mean, that the moment of the night and sketch of the night, that's it for me. All right. It is always fun when they're backstage and when Lauren Michaels participates and it gives you that little bit of like behind the curtain, seeing the nuts and bolts of SNL. There's always something fun about that. So I can, I can get on board with that. I, I enjoy any cold open where they go backstage. What about you, Steve? What do you got? I'm just going to have to say Mr. Peepers. Yeah. Just because I found it uh, really well done by Dwayne Johnson. Mm-hmm. And this is probably really surprising for people at, watching at the time. I don't know if we've seen this side of the rock before. It was, it was fun to watch. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm going with Mr. Peepers and Papa Peepers um, with, a, I think, an honorable mention to Horse Paste which I just, I, I think it's well-written. Like there's just a lot of specificity in, in the horse based one, but 
the trouble that they often run into when they have recurring characters like a Mr. Peepers is finding ways to integrate the host organically and, and figure out a new gear for the, the sketch and you just sort of make everything come together in a, in a way that makes it feel fresh. And they can't always pull that off. Uh, recurring sketches are sometimes a little too rigidly formatted to figure out a, a really good way to work in the host. In this case, I thought it was inspired. I, I think the rock is, you know, the, the silverback gorilla, um, <laughs> just dominating the scene. And then the, the kindred spirits of them both getting into hump mode. There's just, there's just so many fun little things that you needed a second Mr. Peepers to be able to go to those places and who better than the rock for that. So uh, yeah. I think that that works pretty well as a sketch. That'll take it for me. It's also a, a classic, you know, host doing a mirrored version of a recurring right. character, which is a, right. a big motif, like all the way back to the first year with, uh, what was it? Uh, Richard Pryor doing the, the samurai character. Yeah. With, all right. That's with, right. Yeah. So this, this is hard coded into SNL's DNA. Definitely a very SNL y type of scenario. Uh, MVP. Franco, what do you got? MVP. I mean, I said it, uh, Chris Parnell is the MVP of the episode. Yeah. Hands yeah. down. Yep. You've already made your case. I think that is more than fair. What do you got, Steve? Chris Parnell sounds good to me. Um, sure. You know, who, who has done as good of a job as, as Chris Parnell uh, only to get fired twice? You know, it just seems <laughs> so wrong. They fired him, rehired him, fired him again. And he's, he's, you know, he's one of the most rock solid, reliable cast members they've ever had. Yeah. And this is such a prime example of it. Yep. Let's make it unanimous. I think you guys made a solid argument. I am totally on board with Chris Parnell. Yeah. He, uh, he doesn't always get his due because, you know, sometimes it's the ones that are, are willing to pick up the slack and, and be that competent support that you, they don't become the stars. But I couldn't imagine this era without him. Think of the, the Mr. Tarkanian sketch. Remember the one where uh, Will, Will Ferrell's the boss and he's always like verbally abusing everyone. And at the end, Chris Parnell comes out with a trident and a net and he's like ready to battle <laughs> Will Ferrell to the death. Like that kind of stuff. I don't know. Like Chris Par- Parnell, definitely an, an unsung hero of this era of SNL and happy to give him an attaboy. Now, on a scale of classic, great, decent, weak, or train wreck, how would you rate this episode? All right, Steve, I'll let you uh, run with this one first. I'll give it a great. I don't, I don't know if I'd look back at this as like a particularly classic episode, but it certainly uh, has, you know, a unique spin on it with the uh, uh, party crasher wrestler guy narrative. Um, uh, the rock, this is his first time hosting, you know, in hindsight, we know he he's always great on the show, but this is the first time he's proving himself. Uh, yeah. The, the writing may be a little wonky in places. And some of that may be just like, you know, seeing it uh, from a 2022 perspective, things are dated of course. Uh, but yeah, just all these unique elements it had really elevates that average writing mm-hmm. to make this, you know, a, a great episode to look back on. Sure. What do you got, Franco? Uh, I'm going to say classic. I mean, mm. some of the things you've mentioned, I mean, and it's hard for me not to m- make it a classic. Well, it was your pick, it was right? Also the, it was my pick, <laughs> yeah. but also one of the episodes that kind of pulled me into the SNL right. world. Yeah. Um, you literally also, pick, could, have, could have picked from any episode they ever made, and this is the one you picked. So. It was the first one that came to mind. I'm like, if I want to talk to you about, about a classic episode, I think this is the one. Mm-hmm. Um, I've One of the reasons that Steve mentioned, I think that um, The Rock was a multiple host 
also it's classic in that this is kind of a snapshot of right when he ascends into like right this is just taking off into stardom taking off into being a multi-host um you know we get to see cameos we get a lorne cameo we get a piece of tracy morgan like (laughs) even though you know on the history of tracy morgan on the show is like also underutilized uh but also always stealing you know Te- like from telling like my favorite moments uh uh tracy calling lauren a bitch uh <laughs> that's like one of my favorite things ever in snl and and here we get to see a little bit of tracy two broken legs like just these zany moments with tracy morgan mm-hmm. um and i think throughout the sketch there's not one where you're like man this is really running really long like what's going on some of them they feel a little bit contrived but like they they work every sketch work every beat work hard to critique weekend update because that is you know this is like asking me if this newspaper makes sense today i'm like i don't know news print is dead um (laughs) (laughs) uh but yeah classic classic yeah it has a a warm place in your heart i i get it i'm gonna land just this side of the line on great um i think the argument for classic is there because Anytime you have a host that turns out to be a five timer, like official friend of the show, come back anytime and you see how it all started and you see that they had like a really fun week and the show had a good energy and you can tell that everyone just enjoyed having them there. That energy in itself is infectious and that can, that can get you into classic territory. Um, but I feel like just some of the fundamentals of the show weren't quite there. Weekend update was a little middling at times. Some of the sketches, I don't think were, were really that well explored i think that um they peppered in a little bit too much wwf jabroni stuff when they could have you know brought some sketches to to better places so i think there were some missteps but i think what you can't deny about this show is how obvious it is that the rock is made to be you know like a a friend of snl and uh you know just how much his charisma comes off how much you can tell that he was just happy to to participate and be part of the process and be game for everything. You know, they, they put him in a dress for better or worse, you know, where, you know, where we stand, uh, you know, with the, the larger implications, he was willing to do it. Right. And there's some people that come into the show and they have an image to maintain and they're not going to deviate from that. And they're just too in their head. You don't get that with the rock. And when you see yeah. that happening and unfolding and the, you can tell that everyone just is enjoying themselves. That definitely gets you far into great territory. So, I, I think it at least got there. <laughs> yeah. And uh, with that said, I think, uh, ooh, I think we more than did justice to this vintage episode of SNL. How do you feel, Franco? Do you think, do you think we uh, were a good standard bearer for the importance of this show for your development? Like, do you feel we did it justice? Uh, for my development? <laughs> yeah. Uh, like if, if this was a formative show for you when you were a kid and you thought, you know what, maybe in 20 years, I'm going to have an opportunity to break this down on a podcast. <laughs> do you feel like you said everything you needed to say about this episode? SNL? I, I think I hope so. I'm, I hope people, I don't know if anyone's sticking. <laughs> we are two um, hours deep into this. Super, I'm like, I, uh, as you're saying that, I'm like, um, yeah, I mean, I could throw in another two hours on <laughs> another element, but yeah, I think we Definitely did. I mean, we went through it all. Yeah. I think we had, there's history, there's trivia, there's, we mentioned the groundlings. I mean, what else can you ask for? This is it. It was there a great rehearsal. I think we're ready to start. <laughs> yeah. 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 Now I'll click record. We'll get into it. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah. I think, uh, I think we covered a lot of ground there and it, it is always fun looking back on shows where, 
they just underscore how much society and culture changes over time and how your perspective is now different looking back on a show than where you were at in your life when you saw it the first time. You know, maybe you were just a, you know, a, a fresh teenager looking to be inspired and you get that from the show. And now you're looking back on it years later and you actually have a career that in some small way very well could have been influenced by it. Like that's, it's just interesting. It's infinite. Yeah. SNL is infinitely interesting in so many ways. I don't know what else there is to say. So I, I think uh, we're just going to, we're going to thank you, Franco. Um, why don't you tell people where they can find your show one last time? Okay. Yeah. You can find uh, Tall Boys on CBC Gem in Canada and uh, on Fuse Wednesday nights at 10. I think we're 1030. I don't know. Double check. Google it. But it's on Fuse <laughs> in the Wonderful. US. Well, it was, uh, it was fantastic to have you up. I'm, I'm so glad we were able to make this work. And uh, yeah, I think we're going to call it a cast. Thanks to Steve Finn and Franco Nguyen. And thanks as well to our most generous patrons, Neil Weinstein, Justin Gardner, Grace Kogan, and Brian Clark. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe on YouTube or wherever better podcasts can be found. Your subscription helps us grow and your support is greatly appreciated. We'll be back soon with more coverage of SNL's 47th season. But until then, this has been the Saturday Night Live After Party Podcast. I'm John Murray. Good night. Have a pleasant tomorrow.